Hi, good afternoon, everyone. Um, when I was first asked to talk about party renewal, I felt a little bit nervous because renewal suggests a break from the past, something changing, something becoming different. And as a new candidate, I don't actually have that good an understanding of how the party worked on the inside previously. So in that sense, what I can give you, I guess, is the perspective of the party from the view of a new candidate, a new MP, and I guess you can judge for yourself whether or not there has been renewal and whether or not you think you know, there is any kind of change, and if there is or there isn't, whether that's a good thing. Now, let's start off with you know, the, I guess, most obvious evidence of renewal. The most obvious evidence is, are there new faces? Now, in this regard, I think the PAP is probably quite unusual among most ruling parties in that we change more than a quarter of the sitting MPs at every election. Now, so in terms of getting new faces in there, I think you know, you've definitely seen more than 24 new candidates. And I think there is, you know, this is a move that always has some kind of political cost because I think when you take away an MP who's you know, had chance to work on the ground, build up you know, support or whatever, and he then retires, I mean, the new MP that comes in has to pick up the pieces, you know, at least try and carry on. Things may be lost in transition. So in that sense, you know, there is sort of a forced renewal, I think, at every election. Um, that creates a very rapid pace of change, sometimes too fast, I think, for people as well. Um, but, you know, but that is, I think, one of the most obvious evidences of change. I myself never expected to be fielded as a candidate. I mean, you know, I'm single, um, not married, and I was told that you know, if you're a male candidate, you have to get married before you get fielded. So, you know, um, I, I guess even in the type of candidates they field, you know, there's obviously been a change. I'm probably one evidence of that. Um, so I think in terms of you know, whether there are new faces, I think that's definitely been the case. After the elections, um, you know, I think there has been, we had, I think, one party meeting, you know, and I think the content of that meeting is obviously meant for, you know, the party itself. But what struck me about that very first meeting was how open the discussion was. And I would say about, you know, 80% of that discussion involved feedback from the backbenchers. Um, you know, the ministers and all that were mostly listening. So to me, that was actually quite interesting because, you know, I always thought that, you know, I guess like the perception many of you have, you know, sort of a monolithic party policies are made top down. But in that discussion, you know, there was almost like no holds barred. I mean, I heard some of the things being said, like, wow, okay, you know, anything goes. And I mean, what is interesting is, you know, I mean, some people say that the party is controlled by a single personality, you know. Uh, but I mean, in that particular meeting, I mean, MM Lee was there. He kept quiet throughout almost the entire session. And, you know, after the session ended, I think he said only one thing, and he said, um, we have to change, and remember, in that process, no one is indispensable, not even me. And this was before, before the announcement. So, to me, you know, I mean, at that point in time, I didn't actually know the significance of that. But, you know, much, uh, just, you know, I guess a week or so after that, when he announced his resignation, that's when, you know, the profundity of that statement actually struck me, and then I realized, wow, you know, this is, you know, this is a party that, you know, lives by what it says, and the change starts from everywhere. Um, so I think that is, you know, what we mean by, I guess, you know, and I guess shortly after that, you saw the whole change in cabinet following. So you see, you know, new people in charge of each of the ministries. And within each of the ministries, I think you've probably noticed a palpable change in the way the ministers in charge are dealing with things. Uh, I mean, I work quite closely with, oh, I don't work with anybody. I work for, as you know, the call in terms of the GRC level, but not on the ministry level. So obviously, you know, MND is one of those areas where I think there's been a lot of public discussion. In fact, I think Alex, uh, so since everyone mentioned him, I should mention him too, was saying that you know, perhaps there's almost too much discussion on the blog, um, and you know, it may be better for the minister to form his mind and then release a statement. But I think what you see is different ministers trying different approaches, 
And you know, part of that, I think, is also part of the process of renewal. So it's not just a renewal in the people. It's not just a renewal in the policies. It's also renewal in the process. Now, you know, I think it will take some time before we arrive at you know, what is the best practice or what is a standard practice. We may not even arrive at a standard practice. But I think what you know, may be helpful in this process is you know, if you know, uh, the people, you know, Singaporeans feel that you know, one approach is better than the other, then you know, by all means, voice it up. Engage the ministers when they come out. You know, share your two cents worth. I know I certainly share my two cents and more at every opportunity I get. And you know, I've certainly not felt you know, held back or restrained in any way. And I don't think people should feel that too. Um, my own perception, at least, you know, working with, uh, and I'm a backbench MP, so I don't have any direct say in the policies and so on. But my own perception working with you know, the office holders and policymakers has been that they are extremely open to input and feedback. Um, you know, whenever I raise any ground issues or anything like that, like MPS cases that I think are difficult and uh, sort of make a test of myself with them, they you know, usually take a look at it, sometimes even themselves, um, and then you know, decide if you know, that case an exception needs to be made, or sometimes more fundamentally whether a policy needs to be tweaked. So in that sense, I think, you know, in terms of approach, it is certainly, you know, far more open, far more receptive uh, than I think the perception was. Uh, another area I should probably discuss, and I think this is also because, you know, it's become quite popular um, to discuss it in light of, you know, this whole move towards what we call normal. And I think one of the assumptions we find in normal is we assume, you know, something like first world democracy and so on. So I guess one of the concepts underlying that is the concept of checks and balances. And you know, I think my friends in blue have you know, probably made a big deal about this. So let me just you know, discuss a little bit about my own experiences with checks and balances. Um, I mean, I've been helping out at you know, MPS sessions for you know, at least three years or so. And I think one of the first things I realized at MPS sessions was, I think there were two myths I had about the PAP before I started helping in that. The first myth was that you know, it was a party that was, I think, very good. You know, it, was, it believed in meritocracy, so you know, if you did well, the whole world was your oyster. You could do anything. I mean, you know, you could you know get a good education, you could get good jobs any part of the world. Taxation was low, so you could enjoy your wealth and so on. So in that sense, you know, I think there's a strong perception it was a rich man's party. And I went to the MPS sessions partly because I was told that you know this is where you can see what the party does for you know those who are struggling, those who are in need. And in a sense, that was, I think, one of the things that changed my perception of the party quite fundamentally. Because you know, even I think in all the earlier discussion, there was a perception that you know we are ignoring sort of the lower segment, and I think um, some people were thinking that you know we don't do enough for them. But one of the things that struck me about you know the MPS sessions is that the individual um, MPs actually have, I think, a very strong connection with the people who come to them there. And most of the people who come to them there are the ones who are actually struggling the most. Uh, most of the cases, you know, you meet there are people who have financial difficulties, you know, um, difficulties making ends meet, and you know, the issues that get them there are quite complex. And I, I think, personally, I don't think it is possible to eradicate poverty anywhere. I mean, you know, no country has ever done it. Uh, I mean, my experience in the UK is that you know they have a much more generous welfare state, but I saw a lot more homeless people there, people who are receiving the dole, but you know, but still not getting a chance to you know get their lives back in order. So in that sense, I don't think there's any answer to the question of poverty, but I think what we need is a solution that you know, ultimately tries to get people out of the poverty trap where possible, or if that's not possible, you know, they really can't work, then at least a system to keep them going. And in dealing with MPS cases, I actually found that we have quite a sophisticated system in dealing with it. I mean, you know, there's sort of different avenues for help and so on, but if you put it together, you can actually you know, try and get people 
um, I think, a minimum standard of living. Now, it's not perfect. I mean, you know, there's some things that I, you know, even back then I thought could be improved. For example, you know, how long people wait for rental flats and so on. Uh, and that's one of the things I think the you know, current you know, minister called dealing with. And that's, I think, one of the things that backbench MPs have been very vocal about for a long time. But, you know, I mean, although there are issues, I think the MPs are very sensitized to the needs of, I think, you know, definitely the people who are struggling the most. Um, if I think there's one area we missed out on, it is probably, you know, like people were saying earlier, perhaps that middle segment, because, you know, we just assume that the middle segment, you know, generally have jobs, they are able to make ends meet, taxes are low, so there's not as big an imposition on them. Um, but then you realize that, you know, and perhaps this is also one of the other points I found interesting, their aspiration is not just to make a living, their aspiration is upward mobility, and that's more difficult. I mean, I don't know how we can promise upward mobility to everyone in the middle. Um, I'm not sure any government can do that, but, you know, but we'll certainly do our best to try. If anyone has any ideas, I mean, I'm all ears. Um, I mean, the one thing that I find is, you know, when people say that, you know, the MPs are disconnected from the ground or don't want to listen to people, I find it a little bit hard to believe because for me, you know, I mean, the way I see it, I think our mandate comes from the people and we are very conscious that, you know, we are answerable at the ballot box each and every time. Um, we make no assumption that, our, you know, we, we won't have to contest. And so it is, you know, in our interest, to make sure that we serve the people in the best way we can. Um, quite often, we do what we think is right. Um, sometimes, you know, people won't be happy with that. So, I mean, I don't really know what the best answer to all these things are. I mean, I'm surfacing the issue, and, you know, I'm saying that I'm completely open to, you know, any kind of discussion, feedback, or anything on it. Um, but I, I think as a party, I mean, that has certainly been my approach, and I, you know, I don't know if that is a change. It certainly seems to me that what I am describing is quite different from the perception a lot of you had of how the party works, so that in itself may be evidence of the renewal. But my style also is certainly to, you know, try to understand the people's needs and meet them in the best way I can. Um, you know, I'm obviously not perfect, so I probably won't understand everyone's needs. And I also think it's impossible to meet everyone's needs, but that's certainly, you know, the direction that we'd like to go in. Um, and I think perhaps the final point I should uh, discuss on, you know, party renewal and so on is what the implications would be, say, you know, because I think one of the assumptions we have in, you know, moving to normal is moving to first world. Now, I would say that when I was young, and, you know, perhaps some people would say I'm still young, but when I was younger, um, I would describe myself as, you know, I mean, I, I enjoy debating, I still do. And I think as a teenager, I was, you know, most influenced by, you know, writers like Bertrand Russell, George Bernard Shaw, Plato. And, you know, the one thing to see about all those people is, I mean, they are extremely critical thinkers, most of them very left-leaning, which, you know, a lot of people think is quite against the grain of the TAP. Um, but, you know, I think the one thing that impressed me about a lot of those thinkers is that, you know, I think they were all trying to search for the truth, trying to find the best way to do things. Now, I, you know, some of their conclusions frighten me. Um, you know, I don't agree with everything they say. I mean, you know, Shaw is one of my favorite writers. Um, I, you know, I enjoy all of his plays immensely. But, you know, when it comes to his views on socialism, I mean, to an extent, I part company with him completely. So, you know, while, I, while I'm impressed by writers, like I don't agree with them completely. But one of the things that struck me was when I went to, you know, um, countries that I guess practice this kind of, you know, sort of liberal democracy, um, the ones that, you know, I guess, uh, I think that Shaw was a big fan of socialism moving towards communism and so on. The one thing that struck me was that competitive politics also has a downside. And I think the fundamental downside is this. It is that parties are forced to fight for the next election, for the next five-year term. And one of the troubles with having to fight for the next five-year term is that the easiest way to do that is to increase government spending and forget about the future. Now, this was actually 
this, this process started, I would say, shortly after the Great Depression. Again, you know, it's a lot of ideas among the people I admire a lot, and that's John Maynard Keynes. Now, his idea was to come out of the Great, Dece uh, Great Depression. Governments had to have the courage to spend beyond their budget so they could revive a flagging economy. Now, that was brilliant insight at the time. But the trouble is, in the 70 years since, I think governments have found it expedient to spend beyond the budget on a regular basis. Because after all, once you've spent beyond the budget once, you know, you've suddenly made a lot more people happy. The only difference, I'd say, between sort of the fiscal conservatives and the more you know, left-leaning parties is that the fiscal conservatives tend to spend more on defense and other related issues, um, you know, church or whatever else, whereas the left-leaning ones would spend more on welfare. But the end result was the same. The government start spending beyond the budget on uh, you know, the constituents that vote for them. Now, the trouble with that in the long run is that that you know, creates, you know, I guess, fundamental you know, ballooning government debt. It reduces the ability of government to engage in fiscal policy in the future. But all these issues only arise in the long term. So that was, I guess, the one discomfort I had with the democratic process at its best, even though I love debate and I enjoy debate. I think the trouble is, you know, when popular politics comes down to politicians having to survive every five years, there is a great risk they may, you know, um, I guess, jeopardize the long term. Now, how does that come back to Singapore? I think in Singapore, for a long time, you know, we even have a law that says you cannot spend beyond uh, the budget every five years. So, in fact, we have almost put in fiscal responsibility into law. Um, so that, I guess, prevents this happening structurally. And that's only because I think the government has had a very strong mandate for a long time. But if that changes, you know, I think opposition parties are already out there, you know, saying we should spend, you know, more than $60 billion just to help this segment or you know, we should um, be willing to you know, dip into reserves and distribute them. So you can already see you know, the pressures of popular politics coming up. So if that is what you mean by you know, new normal, renewal, and so on, then I am not sure that you know, we are ready to go in that direction. So in that sense, I think you know, in that respect, I won't say we are you know, renewing ourselves completely and you know, prepared to give up everything that we held sacred. But in terms of you know, engagement, openness, ideas, doing what's right, you know, the perception I have is that we're completely open to it. Um, now, you know, and I guess, you know, that's probably my piece on renewal. I think, you know, I've covered a couple of things. I've covered, you know, the new faces coming in. Um, I've covered my own feelings there and, you know, how open the party has been to ideas both from myself and, you know, from people in general. But I think the third point I made was also that, you know, we think there are some things that we, you know, that Singapore has been getting right for a long time that has made us different from well in the developed world. And I think there's some things that we want to keep. Um, so in wrapping up, I think, you know, one of the, uh, I remember when we're going to the early stages and, you know, we're telling people, yeah, we're going to change this, we're going to change that. You know, one of the things one of my friends reminded me was, yeah, you know, you can change, but you know, don't forget, don't, you know, change for the 40% alternative 60% who voted for you. So I guess that is the balance that we will keep in mind, you know, in the renewal process. But I hope all of you will join me in that journey. Thank you.